0: Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. This is a tale of those old fears, even of those emptied hells, and none but you shall understand the true thing that it tells. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. Why are books an essential part of the journey of life? How might books help us navigate this journey? How do books help us be human? Joining us today to discuss the last six books of our 12 books everyone should read before they are 30 is regular guest Miss Ellie Mummy. Ellie, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me, as always.
0: Now, last episode we discussed *The Lord of the Rings*, *Beowulf*, *Sidhartha*, *The Divine Comedy*, *The Hammer of God*, and *Moby Dick*. Today's list is no less fantastic. The first half of the list we discussed in terms of of journey, while the first half of the list. Uh, falls under this description and perhaps the second half of the list could fall under this description too. This second half strikes me as things may not be as they seem or appearances may be deceptive or something like that. If you were to characterize the list of books that we will discuss today on this episode, what would you say?
1: Um, I would second that, and I would also say that, while I see so much about that concept of self in the last episodes list, that still exists here, but I think it exists in this list more in how does that understanding of yourself reflect in your relationship with others? And this concept of community is is going to be really important to this next series. Your relationship to self and you, in, in the way that you are defined by other people. So it's, it's that idea of self-tied to others and tied to community that I think is really important in these last six.
0: Fantastic. Well, let's get into our list. The first book on our list is A Series of Unfortunate Events. Uh,
1: you guys are going to get quite a treat, I think, in this episode because it does include the two... The series and book that are most fundamental to me, and the books that I think are most crucial. Um, and this is the first of them. Uh, I like to read because of the series of unfortunate events. This is the series that made me like reading as a child, and I think is incredibly important. Um, this is not as common as I guess I would have thought it is, as far as modern series go. Um, but the series of unfortunate events is thirteen children's books that f- lead you through um, the lives of the Baudelaire orphans. Um, they are really something, and my—I guess—my unique perspective on how important this book, this these series is, is that I read them as like a first grader and onward. I read them as a young child, um, and these books. Just really shaped how I viewed the world and how I viewed reading, and they do a great job of. I mean, they have great humor. Um, the the like opening sentence is, "If you are looking for a story with happy endings, you'd best stop now." Um, like it just warns you, this is not going to be happy. This is not your average story. Um, but it's all about growth. It's all about growing up. You're following these these children from the moment that they find out that they're orphans to like you know throughout all of it it's all about them growing through that um and it's really focused on sin i mean it's a series of unfortunate events bad things happen that's what happened um but in doing so since they are in these unfortunate circumstances and they're kind of the brunt of all of these unfortunate events it, it gives you an understanding of what it means to love others and what it actually means to be compassionate for others because these children don't receive that very often. They do have people who love them, but they also have people who love them in a failing way that people who think that they are being loving towards these children when what they're doing is really making their circumstances even worse. And that I think is brilliantly done Um, And so I think as an adult, you read this and you realize that the way that you treat children and the way that you think you're treating people well often can make their circumstances worse because you're still focused on yourself and not actually thinking about that person and what they need. Um, And so you have these people and these characters throughout these books who genuinely love these kids, but they don't don't love them past their own heads. So they, so they end up not helping the kid that well, or they fail at trying to help the kid that well, because they don't see past themselves. You know, they, they're in, you know, book number one and, you know, or, or even just book number six, and maybe they weren't there for the rest of the other ones. So they don't see the context. They don't know what's going on and they fail at it because they don't try and learn the context. They don't listen to it. So I think that's really important for adults, but the thing I would say that's most important about these books and the thing that every adaption, um, and I could I could honestly go on for years and years about how the Netflix adaption of this series is terrible, um, but every adaption has missed is that these books teach children that they aren't gonna get taught how to be adults. Um, because that was the thing that I was so prepared for. After having read these books, that I wouldn't have been at all otherwise, where you don't, you don't have this moment when you're growing up where, oh, you've turned 15. Great, I'm gonna sit you down and you're gonna, I'm gonna tell you how everything works. You're now gonna know how adults' life works. You just all of a sudden are stuck in it and you have to try and figure it out. And maybe people will try to help you, but you're stuck and you're just gonna have to now figure out, oh great. I just found out my actions have consequences. What do I do with that? I just found out that you know, these people that I thought were perfect are not perfect and I just realized how not perfect they are and all of those things. You don't have a moment where someone sits you down and explains how to be an adult and explains adulthood to you and life to you. That just never happens. You just go through experiences and all of a sudden you are an adult. And these books do a great job of it and also make it very clear that your age has no reflection on when you go through that experience. Every person goes through that experience that makes them an adult at a different moment. And these books do it in a phenomenal way where they, they put you in with the kids and you don't realize that you're oblivious and that you're only thinking in the perspective of a child until all of a sudden you get deeper and deeper into them. And you're like, Oh, wait, there's all of this other stuff that I didn't know I was going to have to deal with, and now I have to deal with it. What do I do? And that's what they lead you through. And this is what I think no other book does as well. While simultaneously being a book, being a collection of books that reference more literary novels than any other I've ever experienced. I mean, the first character that you meet is um, Mr. Poe and his children, Edgar and Alan, and all of these just just little references throughout the whole thing. Um, You meet a character whose name is Thursday. You meet a character whose name is Dewey and he works at the Decimal Hotel. Like it's just all of these references that unlock more insight the older you get, the more you read and the more that you know. And it makes you feel like all of these people are characters or moments in something that you associate with your childhood in just a really brilliant way. Um, So I think it's brilliant for adults. It teaches you compassion for others and the way to treat others. Um, And it also teaches you what it's like to be a child and why adolescence going into adulthood is just innately difficult and sort of unfortunate and difficult, although still beautiful, Um, because you, you have to deal with all of a sudden having an adult brain instead of a child brain. It just happens, and nobody knows when that's going to happen to you, and there isn't a way to just sit someone down and explain it all to them when that happens. So you do just get thrown in, and then you deal with it. And that's, I think, what these books do a brilliant job of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I I like how you point out that one thing these books help us to navigate is that adulthood does not happen at the same time for everyone. And it's not based on, for example, age. It's not something that you reach a certain age and therefore you are an adult. And it might not even be a certain experience. You know, some people say, uh, well, you have to go to college in order to be an adult or you have to, uh, you know, have a job in order to be an adult or you have to, you know, fill in the blank. You know, everybody has their list of of things that that make you an adult. And what I hear you saying is that it's not necessarily an age or a thing, but it is unique to each individual person.
1: Yes, and I think... Honestly, there's the argument, you could argue a lot of different moments in this in this series are when the children become adults, but I think the best argument I have heard is that the children become adults at the beginning of the first book, when their parents are orphaned, because the circumstances now make it that they have to be adults because they don't have their parents anymore. They don't have adults. But then throughout the whole rest of the series, they're still treated as children. They're still children. In the novel, but you can see through these kids adult qualities and adult responsibilities that are not being credited to them, and that happens a whole bunch throughout the whole series. And it's a source of frustration for you as a reader, especially as a child reader, um, because you as a child can easily see that these children are mature and able to make the decisions that they need to make, whereas they the adults in the, in the novel can't, in the books can't. Um, and that I think is great. And also should remind us now as adults, not to belittle children and not to baby them. And to realize that if they're asking legitimate questions and they're able to be responsible for things, you need to let them. Um, and you need to respect them with the same respect that you have for adults. Um, and that that is just phenomenally done um, through these books. And I think really, really did change the way I thought of growing up, even as a kid right away. Um, and ever since then, I just think back to those books and how well they did that um, and how they affect me looking at the children that I know in my life and the children that I'm close to who might be 11, but who want to sit and talk to me about these deep concepts and about working and about life and all of these things and how it would not be me being loving or me being actually good or serving them to just write them off as like, oh, you're cute, um go play with your toys. No, if you wanna have that conversation with me, you get to have that conversation because you're you're asking and you genuinely want it. You're not, you know, that's, that's just very important. And you don't know anyone else's maturity rate. You don't know anyone else's circumstances, so you have to take someone at face value and not overwhelm them or push them in a way they don't deserve to be pushed. But but if they're coming to you and they're asking adult questions and they're asking for that form of respect, they are a human being and you have to give them that. Like you they deserve your respect even if they don't deserve to have authority over you. I think we equate those more than we should. And and we make it so that, oh, well, if if I should respect you, that means you have authority over me. And so you don't deserve it because you're 12. But no, you deserve your respect, even if you don't have authority over me. And that I think really comes through in these books in a way that we don't talk about, especially in modern society.
0: Yeah, it seems in modern society, we set arbitrary and yet unmovable (laughs) stepping stones or milestones that Quick Trip wants to let me know what they need. Um, (laughs) we, we, we set these arbitrary yet immovable milestones that children have to experience in order for them to be considered adults and until they have you know experienced all of them uh they're not worthy of 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 these sorts of things and it's interesting to ponder that okay so these books were written what 20 25 years ago something like that maybe something
1: it might even be more recent than that okay
0: all right um just thinking about how the, how the i guess the the scales have have shifted you know over time i mean it used to be that there was and maybe and maybe this is something that this series is lamenting that it used to be that um children were allowed to have responsibility and experience things, and um, and it was expected that children not persist in childhood in perpetuity, right? Um, maybe maybe this series is lamenting that to a certain extent.
1: I think it is, and um, one of the reasons I think so is that. There is a direct and obvious contrast that these children are more mature and more adult like than over half of the adults that they meet throughout this series, where you're just like, that person is allowed to just do their own thing and be an adult, and you're not letting these kids. Um, And there's whether it's, I mean, a lot of this book is about the legal and arbitrary parameters that are not allowing these kids to be adults. Um, that does happen a lot. There's a lot of people getting involved and a lot of people trying to prevent them from just, you know, continuing on and growing up and taking care of themselves. There's a lot of people preventing that in a lot of just arbitrary circumstances. So I really do think that that is part of what these books are doing is saying, um, I, don't, I don't really think that this is the right, the right way to do things. Um, and I think it also goes back to one of the, the books on the boys list, Peter Pan, where we talk about the idea of growing up and the idea of who's responsible and who's mature and who's an adult. Um, because I'm, so I'm currently rereading Peter Pan. So it's very kind of fresh in my memory. But you get it's this whole contrast of viewing life as a, viewing the world as a kid views the world versus viewing the world as an adult views the world. And you can have two kids of the same age who do it the same, who do it the two different ways. Um, And that is something that is going to create strife for those two kids might not really know how to communicate with each other then because they view the world differently. But there is the temptation as a world of adults who think in boxes and in categories to force that kid who thinks like an adult to stay only with the little kids and they're not allowed to be in the group that makes more sense to them. And so I do think that's a lot of what this book is wrestling with and forcing you to think about differently. Um, And I really appreciated this. Again, these books mean a lot to me and I think are really important, but I appreciated them as a child because they prepped me for that idea and they helped me have an understanding that I was going to be frustrated by that, that I was going to reach a point where I wanted to be an adult and people weren't letting me, that adults weren't letting me be an adult. And that I think is brilliantly done because it gave me just a better understanding of the fact that that struggle was going to happen. And the fact that it didn't mean that I wasn't actually, and didn't deserve to be an adult. It meant that the adult's had the wrong perspective on something and that that didn't make them any less of a person it made them misunderstand you know it it was it was an opinion that they have and a belief that they have that's wrong but doesn't make them any less in need of my respect or my um you know kind of politeness towards them and obedience towards them as superiors but that it still meant that they were wrong Um, and that i think is helpful because otherwise you reach that point where you realize that your authority figures are wrong. And then you feel like you don't ever need to listen to them again. And these books also teach you that that's not the correct thing to do. So I just think they're really, really well done. And they, I mean, really deal with that idea of society and, and what it means to be an adult better than most books I've ever read.
0: Yeah, and that's something and we don't have to get into this today, but that that's something that if you read Luther's large catechism, the fourth commandment, that that is certainly something that is wrestled with there in terms of, you know, what if someone is not you know fulfilling what they are to do. You know, what about uh, a father who abandons his children—you know these these sorts of things. So you know, having these opportunities to to wrestle with these things and um, you know have have a context and uh, an opportunity to ponder these things is is fantastic. Um, the next book on our list is supremely fantastic, and. I have to say that when I was reading it, I, I just read it recently, I couldn't put it down. It was, you know, I would stay up late reading it. Uh, and when I got up in the morning, I would sneak a few pages in uh, before I, you know, while I was making breakfast, um, I would be reading, you know, while I was stirring oatmeal and uh, scrambling eggs. Uh, it was just that good. Like, I, I knew there was something going on, but I couldn't quite wrap my head around it. And it was just, it it's fantastic. So without further ado, the second book on our list is G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday.
1: Yep. And um, we've obviously, we had a whole conversation about Chesterton and why Chesterton is important. Um, one of the things about I love about this book that again, I think, ties into a series of unfortunate events and ties into the rest of the novels is the way that you perceive the outside world and the way that the outside world is. Um, And uh, I divide this novel into three sections. Like there's three moments in the book. There's the first moment where you're kind of setting everything up and you're like, oh, something is going on. And this is very odd. And then you kind of get into this like, the second part of the novel which is this rhythm and you're like oh I oh I know where we're going and I've got this I you know I'm I'm following a line and then you hit the last part and you're like this is not what I thought it was and this is I don't know what to do with it I don't know where to place it and it's it's almost like you're frustrated and annoyed and disappointed because you're like this is not what I thought and you want it to be what you thought and that I think is what's brilliant about it is it is it sets you up like, oh, what is going to happen? And it's like, oh, you know what's going to happen. And it's like, by the way, you don't, right? (laughs) Nope. You don't don't have a clue. Um, And that's, it's just a really weird experience to go through because you do binge the book and you just don't, you don't know what's coming. And I think that's really good because, you know, the things that I wrote down as fundamental about this book that you learn is society versus reality, is that we as a society build up these like, oh, well, this is how stuff works. And reality inevitably is like, ha, no, that's not actually, here you go. This is what's actually going to happen. And I I mean, you illustrate that in every aspect of life. But even just, you know, mo- the modern world got into a huge rhythm. And we were, you know, we all know how life works. And then the whole COVID thing happened. And it was like reality going, yeah, nope. Mm-hmm, here's, this is this just here's a curveball. Good luck, um, and that happens all the time. And that's part of growing up, and that's part of adulthood. Is that even if you think you have a plan and you think you know what's going on, you 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 never know when a curveball is going to hit, and you never know when everything is just going to completely and radically change, and everything that you thought was what was going to happen is flipped on its head. And I think this book does a great job of that. And I also think this book does a great job, therefore, of teaching you that it is one thing to understand life and to um, like to understand and plan and to think. And it is a very different thing to live your life trusting um, and trusting that all things will work together for good and trusting that even if you don't understand, sometimes that trust is more important and that belief is, it, it just is more important to the way that you live your life. And if you have that trust and that faith, no matter how many times the world is flipped on its head, you have something to cling to. And I think that's really what this book does a great job of reminding you, um, especially in a world where we we live in a society that believes that society is everything and that what the society decides is what is correct. Um, And this book turns that on its head. It says, hey, whatever society thinks might have literally, might live in a completely different world than what reality is. This is reality and this is society and they're literally not even connected at this point. And I think it does a good job of preparing you for the fact that that very well might
0: be the case. Yeah, and as you were talking there, it occurred to me that perhaps one of the things that Chesterton is trying to I don't know if if he's encouraging or admonishing uh you know sometimes it's it's hard to tell where we are where, where we're sitting with Chesterton uh, on at, at any given moment but the the fight for reality you know when when society uh throws us that curveball and we're faced with you know this the, that we are told that something is real and we look at it and we go no that's not real you know what is what is our place in terms of fighting for reality and demanding i don't know if demanding is is the right word but um pondering uh reality in that regard
1: yeah i i think he is uh, i think more so than like demanding reality it's it's this idea of constantly searching and refusing refusing to sacrifice reality because you're tired of looking for it um And I think that's a big part of it. Um, And actually, we're going to draw back to Series of Unfortunate Events, because like I mentioned, there is a character in the Series of Unfortunate Events who's named Thursday. There is like a whole reference to this book um, and the whole concept of the man who was Thursday in the book that that pops up. And it pops up so frustratingly in that book as well it's hilarious now that I've read Man Who Was Thursday to look back on that and see just how brilliant it is because you reach this point where you you just you know with the kids you are fully on the same page as them you get it and you just you have pinned down finally what these books are about and then it switches on you and you you get so mad you're just like, are you kidding? This completely changes the entire context of the books. And it completely changes everything. And you don't necessarily know what reality is. But you still just have to pick yourself up and keep going and say, okay, everything just altered itself again, instead of just being like, okay, great, I'm going to accept this. And this is just going to be my reality you have to just keep going because you have to search for that objectivity and that actual what is real. And this book does that a hundred percent. So it's telling you that it's not a linear journey. It's telling you that it's not a once and done, you have found reality and you've escaped society. It's a, Hey, guess what? You get to keep doing this over and over and over again. And in a different context and in a different way, and that's that's gonna keep happening. Um, and and it I think it does give you a there is a reality, there's a light at the end of the, you know, tunnel. You will find like there is reality, but I think it's not necessarily telling you it's gonna be easy, it's not gonna be what you think it is, and it's not gonna be just an immediacy thing. It might it's gonna take you your whole life. It really is, I think. And I think Chesterton Hinn said all of that. Um, and I think it is just what's important about this book is it forces you to rethink reality a lot of times.
0: Well, and you brought up this whole idea of, you know, the the search for the objective, you know, that, that our perception and our experience, what we see, you know, you know, God certainly gave us our reason and all our senses and still takes care of them. But there's this aspect of, You know, what we see might not be reality because we are clouded. You know, sometimes we can't, you know, but but God's word gives us our objective. And I think that, you know, that our objective in terms of reality. And I think that uh, the man who was Thursday, even though it's not overt in how it, it it. it gives that there is this this undertone and maybe it's just because we know chesterton right but there's this undertone that even in the chaos and even in the and i don't want to give the book away um but but even in the circumstances that arise there is still an objective reality that exists that is not put into place by the characters there's this there's this undertone that it could be you know that it's that it's it's outside of us and determined by someone else we know that that objective reality that objective truth uh is is god and his word but i think that that in the midst of everything that we have to cling to that
1: yes and i think actually this is just getting uh and and obviously that's how i wrote the list but it's funny to me the more you talk about it the more like meta it gets where i'm just going to draw back to the different books on the list um this is just a big thing where i think it's not even just christians have to cling to faith and that that's as easy as it is. It's not that easy. And that's another part that I think that comes up in series of unfortunate events. It comes up in the hammer of God, where you want to just be able to be like, the Bible tells me exactly how to live every aspect of my life. But then you reach adulthood and you're like, okay, but like, what about in this specific circumstance? What is the right thing in this specific circumstance? And you don't know. And you're trying to discern what the best decision that you can make is based on the word of God for that specific moment in your life. But it's not like God says, Ellie, when you turn 24, you're going to do this. We don't get that. We still just, we just get this understanding of the reality and objectivity. And you're trying to like sort through all of the murky, just cloudiness of a sinful life to just be like, okay, I think that's the light. I'm trying to go for it. That's what we're doing. And I have these guides, but hopefully this is a step in the right direction instead of a step to the left or even a step backwards. I'm trying and I see where I'm needing to go and I'm not going to lose focus on that, but it is not black and white. And that's kind of, we're in the murkiness and we know where we need to go, but we don't necessarily know how to get there. And, and that's, that's, I think, also reflected in this book where it's like, even, even in that, and it's okay to have that. I think we, we've set a lot of people up to think if they have that moment with their faith, that they're losing their faith because, well, I don't know what, what I'm supposed to do in this scenario. Clearly that means I'm not Christian enough. I'm not, you know, Lutheran enough. I don't, I'm not good enough at the scriptures. And you're like, no, it doesn't give you again, a moment by moment, second by second guide for what you're supposed to do. And so We see this in The Hammer of God. We see this all over the place in these books. But I think Man Who Was Thursday does that as well. And I think that's part of after having read other Chesterton, like you said, that's what Chesterton's doing here too, is it's like, even when you are 100% positive that something is true, that doesn't mean you know what that truth means correctly in your own life. And you might have this moment where you're like, oh, that was supposed to mean this thing, not what I thought it meant. Um, And I think that's also a big part of Man who was Thursday.
0: well i think that leads us beautifully to frankenstein somehow these transitions just happen and uh here we are at frankenstein which uh kind of hilariously is probably one of the most misunderstood books ever because everyone thinks that the creature is frankenstein Right, you know, like you're, you're on the outside and you, and you think Frankenstein and you think the creature.
1: And of course it's instead his creator. Um, and this book and the next book, uh, again, ridiculous. It's like, it's like I have certain things that I've been pondering and thinking that would come up in this list that I'm making because they just flow together because the next two books are talking about a college dropout who is dealing with all sorts of these like big humongous questions. And what do I do with them? And in a very philosophical way. Um, So that's what these next two are about. But Frankenstein is about, of course, Frankenstein the human who drops out of college, or I think he might get suspended because he just doesn't show up, but he doesn't doesn't make it through college. Um, And he instead decides that he is going to build a creature using all the new science and tech, to, to create life. And we have so many exhaustive kind of conversations in a literary context about Frankenstein, because it really is the first science fiction novel, it is the first of many to come. And it really does this fundamentally brilliant thing. But one of the things that I was lucky enough to get to talk about with a professor when I studied this book, um, and that I think is brilliant in this novel, and I never hear discussed, that it was something that he and I kind of discovered or kind of talked about in a different context, is that this is a novel about the roles of men and women. And it's a novel that breaks down gender roles. So this is a novel about a man taking a woman's gender role, where he's saying, I don't need a woman, I get to create life by myself, on my own. And it has consequences. Um, and I think it's funny because everybody thinks this is Mary Shelley being extremely feminist and being like, women don't need men. And here's all of this. And it, it's the exact opposite. It's saying if men try and take the roles of women away from women or vice versa, it is not going to go well. And that really is at the heart of this novel. And it it's telling you that when you remove and you go against the the order that God has created, there are consequences. And I think that's great. Um, And we don't talk about it as much. is that it's like, yes, people can get married in the eyes of the courts and they can have children in the eyes of the courts in a way that was not the way that God intended. And it can just be like, well, I'm redefining the term where it's like, no, we didn't create these things. God created them in a specific way. And if you deny that way or go against that way, there are consequences. And this is a great novel for that because because Frankenstein takes it upon himself to create life himself without the help of a woman and without being with a woman. The reality of that is that it does not create love. He may create something, but there will not be the love that needs to be there. And all of the problems come because Frankenstein does this out of an obsession with himself and his own intellect, instead of out of love, which creates a child. And that's, that's this really brilliant sort of, he steals a woman's role and he takes this idea of creation and it just goes horribly awry because he does it selfishly instead of selflessly, which is the way that the roles are designed to create life. And so that I think is just this phenomenally important thing right now where it portrays to you the dangers of serving yourself versus serving others and how roles are the way that they are for a reason, because it's a way to show love and care for other people. And if you try and take them away and you try and infringe upon those things, bad things are going to happen because you're self-serving and therefore you are not going to have those innate qualities that are needed for those roles so Frankenstein has none of the qualities that make being a mother important and therefore he's a horrible mother because that's really what he's not a father to the Frankenstein monster he's not a father to him at all which is why ironically and hilariously the monster does not take Frankenstein's name is because he's the mom not the father Um, and so I think that's really really important and it destroys like everything and that I think is really important and is a way we refuse to read the novel in a modern sense because we don't want to admit that those roles are important and that this young woman could be writing about the importance of those roles in a very dark and scientific fiction sense. So that's what I think is brilliant about Frankenstein and why I think it's so important is that she's, she's showing you what is so wrong with messing with what reality is, and what it does, what its results are, is if you fight what is real, and you reject what is real, it will not go well.
0: Yeah, and I think about the context in which it was written, Um, you know, we're, we're coming out of and starting to revel in the enlightenment and enlightenment thinking. And you think about that in addition to everything else that's going on in this novel. Again, uh, we, we should do an entire episode uh, or multiple episodes <laughs> just on Frankenstein because there's so much there. And I think that it, we haven't talked about that a whole lot in our discussions in terms of the context in which these novels were written. But I think that it, it could be glaringly obvious that Frankenstein comes out of literally of upheaval, you know, just in terms of the time in history in which it was written.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely. Um, and I, I, <laughs>
1: That actually hits upon the thing that I believe most fundamentally about literature, good literature, which I came to that conclusion because of the next book on the list. So again, the transitions are hilarious to me, but I am very firmly of the belief that a really well-written novel gives you all the context that you need. And that if you read a book that was well-written by that author, you will come out of that book knowing the author and being friends with the author to the point that when you read about the author, you're like, well, yeah, I, I know, like, I know this person and there might, like, I know them. And that's obviously what she was talking about and what she was going through. Like you read about Mary Shelley after reading Frankenstein and you're like, yeah, that's what she did. She told me that while telling me this story, like, I know that. And learning to read that way is really, really helpful because then it's not that surprising and it's not hard to remember that because then when you learn about Mary Shelley, you're like, mm-hmm, yep, I, I knew this. This makes sense. Yep. Um. Okay. Moving on. Like I, I, yep, sure. It's just, you're telling me context. I already know to remind me it's like relearning someone's birthday and it's like relearning these aspects and it, it makes literature also less stodgy and snobby. It's like, no, I, I'm getting to know people through this um, because it's not that hard to pick up the person behind the novel at the same time. And I think if you truly love a novel, you, you will feel close to and as though you are friends with the author behind the novel just as much. And I think this is a good novel to kind of learn that with because I think it's easy to learn the context of what she's writing in and what's happening at her time by reading this book. You're like, "Oh, this is when she lived and this is what was happening in England while she was there and this is this is pretty pretty blatantly obvious in her in her book." So I think that's a really important part of reading and learning to read as an adult and learning to read in a way that creates community and builds understanding and discussion is to learn to read without trying to block the author out. Um, I don't think you have to read a book without knowing any context. And I don't think you have to read a book knowing all the context before you start. But I think those two things cross over naturally, where you learn the context by reading the book, and you learn the person by reading the book, and you want to do more. Because you're like, oh, well, I feel like I know this person, and I want to know more about them. And I want to learn their details, and I want to read their letters, and I want to read these things, because you're getting to know someone, and you're getting to know a different context and a different moment in history, and it really ties two time periods together. I actually talk about this a lot in tragedy in my class. Um, We talk a lot about how we finish the semester by reading Euripides, um, and Euripides lived like in the 400s BC, long time ago, and unanimously so far, he has been The student's favorite, and they very much feel like he's writing to the same context that they live in. So they have this insane gap of years between them and Euripides, but they still feel like they could have a normal conversation with him because their context almost seems like the same to them. And so it's this ability to read across centuries and millennia and actually know the person behind it in a way that like, it doesn't surprise them when they learn then Euripides' life story. They're like, "Mm -hmm, yeah, I know him. That makes sense. Okay. He obviously was thinking about these things and asking these questions. So I think Frankenstein is a great way to learn to do that. But I think the more you learn to do that and you open yourself up to the person behind the book you're reading, the more you get out of the reading.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that that is a really good... Apology for just reading, you know, when children are learning to read or when children are reading even for school and uh, to just read. You know, sometimes we spend so much time with, you know, literature packets and study guides, and, you know, uh, y- you need to know the author, and you need to, you know, okay, lo- so let's let's break down the plot, and let's talk about, you know, the, the character development, and let's talk about the themes, and let's talk about the, you know, no, just read. All of these things are going to come to you, and if we if we spend so much time chopping up literature and making it all about the elements of literature, we completely lose the literary value of it because we've set that aside and said, well, these these things are more, you know, we lose the forest for the trees. And I think that everything you just said there really provides a good testimony for the fact that just read it will make sense. Yep.
1: And it will also make, you know, the trees ridiculously well, that's right. Like It really will. Um, and that I think I'm going to segue us into the next book um, with that, because the next novel is crime and Punishment* by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Um, this is my favorite novel. It is not even, hot take, in my opinion, what I think is the best novel ever written. I think it is the best best piece of literature ever um, written down. And just going off that, I read Crime and Punishment ridiculously young. I was 13 or 14 when I read it. Um, I think I started when I was 13, and I was 14 when I finished it. But I didn't really read it with any community. I didn't know anyone who'd read it, of course, because I was way too young to read it. Um, So nobody else my age had ever read it and no adults that I knew had read it. Um, So I read a book that took me a year and a half to read and then felt like I knew the author. And that was the first time I'd ever had this feeling of, I know the guy who wrote this, even though he had obviously died 200 years before I was born. Um, And I got to college and I took classes and I finally took a class about him. And I remember we had to give an author presentation. Like every person had to prepare information and background on an author. And I did the presentation on Dostoevsky. And it was not like I was doing research. It was like me introducing a friend. Like, oh, I have this friend and he lives over here. And this is what his, you know, here's the context of his life. It wasn't, it wasn't hard for me. And it wasn't hard to even think of because, nothing that I learned about him in that textual like factual research was any different than what I knew about him from reading the book because it was just like, Oh, he's this, this is what Dostoevsky, this is his personality. Here you go. Here he is. And it made it way easier. And it made, it makes for me seeing what he is doing and seeing what he's influenced by and what his culture is so easy because I let him kind of just have a conversation with me through the book. It was like we were talking through that book. Um, And I think children are very good at that. So I think if you can help allow kids to have that opportunity, it's really great. Um, I would not have been able to do that probably from what I've heard about how hard it is to read Russian literature for most people. I think if I would have tried older, it would have been very different. Um, But I had that opportunity to just have a conversation with the author in my head with a book that I think was really, really good. Um, But this book is, again, we can go on and on and on forever about this novel as far as I'm concerned, but this book very simply put shows us what complete and utter human depravity looks like. um, And it shows us what compassion is and what humility is simultaneously. and it shows us how that works in community. And you have the main character, uh, Raskolnikov, and Raskolnikov is the exact same as Frankenstein in so many ways. He is a young, like um, I think he's 22, college dropout who is not like just stubborn and hateful and doesn't have a soul. He has a very, very, very intense soul. And this is what we see in Russian literature all the time. um, And that's part of Russian culture is that they focus on the soul far more than the Western world does. as They have this idea that human people have a soul and a body and that they are so linked that separating them is ridiculous and talking about one without the other is absurd. And so you see this person with an exceptionally huge soul um, and, and a soul that is... Depraved, and that is really, really miserable and suffering. and it and it makes you as a reader, basically bound to that soul. like you you kind of div- the the divide between you and Raz Kalnikov when you read this book should just disappear. Like you kind of just become him every time you read it. and it's it's not uplifting right off the bat. you know it's not it's not nice to be bound to something with so much torment, but then you grow through it. And I think that's really important because this novel therefore teaches you how to interact with others because every person around you is completely depraved. Um, I would argue that this novel, I think has prepared me well for being married because I, I stuck it out with Raz Kalnikov and he does not do well. Um, and I'm marrying someone who is a sinful human being. Um, but, but it teaches you why it's important to stick it out and why you have to see past what, um, what, what someone's worst qualities are. Um, and that goes to Dostoevsky's whole, that was his whole thing. Um, so you can see that in a lot of his books. But I think this book is the easiest way to teach that to someone. Um, Dostoevsky's, one of his most famous quotes is the quote, um, to love someone is to see them as God intended them. And I think that's a great, um, a great summary of this book is to teach you that you are supposed to learn to have compassion for this totally depraved soul, for Raz And reading the book in the in the way that Moby Dick teaches you to sacrifice yourself, this book teaches you to love someone who does not deserve your love, um, because he does deserve your love, and that's kind of the weird. Uh, conflict of this book is that absolutely nothing he does and absolutely nothing about him and his personality seems to to ask for your compassion while Dostoevsky is constantly telling you subvertly through this novel however he's a human which means he's created in the image of God which means you have to love him sorry even he is created in the image of God so you have to love him even though this is who he is I don't I don't care you must learn to love him and I think it's just brilliantly done. Um, and the amount of relief and understanding I think you get at the end of the novel because of that approach to it is important. And if you approach the novel without being willing to, without being willing to bind yourself to Raskolnikov, it's not going to be the same experience. You have to let yourself love him despite who he is. And if you don't do that, the novel's not nearly as powerful i don't think
0: yeah i completely agree and the way dostoevsky brings you into the the setting makes it easy for you to bind yourself to the characters you know when when you're when you're in the you know the the pub the bar And I mean, you can, you can smell and you can taste, I mean, you could just, you're just so immersed in it, but it's not, it's not cheesy, overwhelming description. It's just, you're just there and you are, you're fully immersed in what's going on. And sometimes it's, you know, Dostoyevsky is, is one that you have a hard time pulling yourself back out and realizing, oh, oh, okay, now, now I'm, I'm here, you know, I'm here in reality rather than, you know, still in the book, you know, that, that sort of thing.
1: And I, I mean, the more that I have listened to people discussing this book and that I've learned more about the culture and understood more about Russian culture. Um, and I am learning the language right now. So the more that I learn about their language and just the way fundamentally russians think about the world and how their history and their culture shape them the more this book makes sense to me and the more important i think it is because like you said it it really is very hard to switch back into just your world the way that your world is once you've started reading this book or any other russian book and i actually think that's really important to us as Americans, because we don't think anything like Russians, the way that Russians think about the world is not the way that a Western American thinks about the world. And I think, especially in the current political and um, social climates that we live in, the people we need to listen to the most are the Russians, because the way that they think about life is so different, that it forces you out of the way that you think of your life. Um, Because I mean, even just the amount of like you're there and you're living through you know this pub scene. And I mean, it's like chapter two of the novel, you're sitting in a pub and you're talking to this guy and you hear all of this stuff. And it's this deep, it's, it's simultaneously just hearing about his life and also having these really intense theological and political and social and internal thoughts about like life in general. It's like a whole existential crisis every five minutes And it's not in a way that's, like, super overwhelming, but it's in a way that reminds you that, like, I never think about my life. Like, I'm literally putting no effort into contemplating how what I do affects my soul and how what I do is affecting the health of my soul Um, and what the um, things I'm exposed to are doing to me. And I think we need to learn that. Um, And I think we need to learn from that. And then there's this whole thing, and again, we can talk about all of this forever and ever, but Russians, I think you have to understand when you read this novel, Russians think of suffering as a good thing. Um, They are not opposed to suffering. They think of suffering as something that makes you a better person, that you grow from it. And they take this too far in their theology. They think that suffering is a sign of your faith, and that the more you suffer, the more you have faith. And it's a very odd sort of conversation but it comes directly out of their culture um and you have to understand that they don't look at suffering as we need to eliminate all suffering every second and if i'm suffering my life is awful and i'm failing they look at suffering and they're like great a challenge this will make me better it will help my soul and i think as sinful human beings we're always going to struggle and looking at struggling as a as an opportunity to grow and an opportunity to learn Would be very, very good for the soul of the American people and the soul of us Um, as Christians. uh, Obviously, not to take it too far theologically, but I think their approach to that is so much more important than we give it um, the opportunity to be. And this novel does a great job of teaching you how suffering can be better for you in the long run than just living unbothered by something. And this book is all about living bothered by something
0: so so take us into concrete then as we come out of uh dostoyevsky take us into concrete
1: so concrete is is the last two novels on this uh list are i think by far going to be the least famous and the least well-known um concrete is a novel by thomas bernard and he is austrian he lived oh like during world war ii he um died fairly young but he lived during the 20th century brilliant i think he's already considered by most of the literary world to be like a just a genius and one of the classics already um concrete is the novel i've read by him i've read short stories by him as well um Concrete is just, it's about suffering with something and struggling through something, but it's also hilarious. It's, it's very modern in the way that it portrays it. And I think one of the reasons I really wanted this book to be on this list is that I think we like to not challenge ourselves. We like to put um, ourselves into novels and books that are in our comfort zone and that are easy for us to read and that we're used to. And I think we lose a lot of beautiful things and a lot of things that challenge us in a good way if we don't. Um, And I think to illustrate why this is a comfort zone, just strangeness, I'm going to read you a little bit of Concrete at the very beginning um, to set it up. Concrete is a novel about um, it's a it's it's in first person narrative and it's about a man who wants to write the best and he means the best biography and kind of paper on a fictional composer Mendelssohn Bartholdy um, that's ever been written. So he's re- read everything that could possibly be written about this person and he now wants to write the perfect like biography of this guy and this is his summary of trying to write it. I lay awake, constantly listening for my sister at the door, alternating between listening for my sister at the door and thinking about my work, and especially about how to begin it, how the first sentence should run, for I still don't know how to word the first sentence, and before I know the wording of the first sentence, I can't begin any work. So all the time I was tormented by listening for my sister's return and by thinking of how I should word my first sentence on Mendelssohn Bartholdy. Again and again, I listened despairingly. And again and again, I thought just as despairingly about the first sentence of my work on Mendelssohn." And he goes on about this for like three pages of just restating the same thing over over and over and over and over again, in very, very similar, but not exactly the same terms. And it's great because it it really condemns you as a person, because you you realize that this is what I do, is I overthink everything, and I'm dwelling on something so much that I'm getting nothing done. I think this is the ultimate novel for perfectionists. Um, this is a book about him l- literally incapacitating himself because he is so insistent on doing something perfectly. And so, so focused on that, that he hates every other aspect of his life because he considers it thwarting his true purpose in life. Um, And so it really deals with all these struggles of making a mark and creating a legacy, um, pursuing knowledge and pursuing passion and really caring about something that might be worth caring about, but going way past the boundaries of what is healthy and what actually lives true to your vocations. Um and I think it's a great novel to read for for the average person, because I think many of us have that duality of understanding that the simple life um, and the Hobbit life and all of those qualities that we look up to um, and those given aspects of life of you know marriage and a family and all of these things are so important and we believe that and we hold to that but then you have to also wrestle with the but I think that these you know intellectual things are really important and I think that they deserve attention and they deserve someone who dedicates the time and effort into them and this is a novel about that and and that struggle and saying but you know I'm either gonna be a horrible brother and a horrible just member of the community so that I can dedicate myself to intellectualism or I'm not going to do this and I'm going to do this. And how do you balance it? Can you balance it? It, it, it makes light of that. It makes you laugh at that struggle, but I think it also brings up those conversations that people are having in, in their own minds as they, you know, care about reading and they care about these important things that they know, though, aren't on that list of the the, the simple life, the important things that we know we need to hold to. And it's this balancing act of that. And I think Concrete does a phenomenal job of that while also introducing you to a form of reading and a form of writing you probably aren't used to and that you should be used to because it's brilliantly done.
0: So that brings us to the last book on our list, which I had not heard of. So introduce us to our last book. Uh, so the
1: last book is called Erasure by Percival Everett. Um, Percival Everett is a professor in Southern California um, and he published this book in 2003. So this is a very, very recent novel. Um, it is uh, insane. It, it is probably in the top four books that have ever just fundamentally changed the way I look at the world around me um, easily. And it is a book all about race. Um, He is an African-American professor, and this book is about the African-American life in the 21st century in America. Um, So I think especially right now, as we're recording this, everybody has questions about that. And I think even in our communities, in the Lutheran circle. How do you have that conversation? What do you, you know, how do you balance a lot of things? There's a lot of questions to be had. I read this novel um, and what it does is it kind of is Percival Everett's attempt to reveal racism in America, the way that he sees it and the way that he experiences it. And Basically, I'll walk you through the plot of the novel. Um, The novel is about a character who is a scholar. He has a PhD. He's a doctor. um, And he's a scholar of the ancients. So he's a scholar of the Iliad specifically, um, but also the Odyssey. um, But he focuses on the Iliad. And as we meet him at the beginning of the novel, he is growing increasingly frustrated because he has written A like phenomenal scholarly review of, and I think done a translation of the Iliad that he wants to publish and send out into the world, and he's been rejected over and over again by over six publishers because with the tagline, you know, this is a great publication and a great translation, um, but it really doesn't have any practical applicus on the like application on the African American experience in America, and we would really like you know, you to be more real to your community and we'd really like you to, um, represent that better. And so he's getting very frustrated because he's, um, a man who is African-American, but who didn't grow up in the ghetto. And that's this huge part of this novel is I didn't grow up in poverty. Both of my parents are doctors. I grew up, you know, in a rich area. I, I don't have that experience. Um, and he ends up getting so frustrated that he feels like, and I think I would argue that the title is that he's being erased and anyone like him is being erased in the African-American context, that he grows so frustrated that he decides to write a spoof novel that he completely makes up that fits every stereotype of what an uneducated African American would say. And it's full of um, because of that, it's very full of expletives and just really ridiculous um think cartoon-like depictions of African Americans. And he's just really frustrated and he writes this, it's spelled wrong, it like is the least intellectual thing. And you get to read this little novel that he writes in the middle of erasure. And then he sent it off to the public publications and under an alias, and it's basically their response of being like, "Yes, great, authentic African American culture. This is great," and so it's him as an intellect struggling with the fact that he's not allowed to be smart because he's supposed to be this one other thing, and it's his argument through the novel. I think that that's what he thinks the current racism is: is the inability to allow African Americans to be anything other than the the rap music or the, um, those depictions. And it was really brilliant. And I don't want to give away the whole rest of the novel, but it it really does change the way that you view those things. Um, and actually brings a very new light onto a lot of other cultural things that have happened since then. And either even just, um, rap and hip hop albums, which I actually find very, very brilliant. And there's quite a few of them that I think are actually literary genius. And this book was Key to me realizing that um, and seeing what they're doing. And so I think it's a book that forces us to think about racism and that concept in a very different way than it often gets talked about and reminds us as Christians that what we need to do is look at every person on an individual basis and talk to them and get to know them specifically. And that anytime you categorize another group of people, Um, whether by religion or race or circumstance or place, you're, you're erasing who they are. You're taking away from their actual identity and you're forcing them to be something that they're probably not. And that's what this book does really, really well. And that I think we need to do, and we see this throughout all the rest of the books, is that you don't get to decide when someone is an adult. You don't get to decide when someone, how someone lives or what, their role is you have to get to know them and you have to know what that person struggles with what where that person is at and what what loving them and actually caring for them as an individual is going to look like and that's different for every person and i think erasure illustrates that and makes you think about that in a very different way than you would otherwise
0: absolutely well, that brings us to the end of our uh, 12 books between last episode and this episode. Miss Ellie Mummy teaches tragedy and the art and history of composition for Wittenberg Academy. Ellie, thank you so much for walking us through these books. Absolutely, it is, it is always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.